Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Advanced Practice Perspectives on CDK 4 6 Inhibitors Paving the Way for HR Positive, HER2 Negative Early Breast Cancer is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Since the date of this activity's recording, an exciting and practice-changing advancement has occurred with the Food and Drug Administration's FDA recent approval of abemaciclib with endocrine therapy, tamoxifen, or an aromatase inhibitor for adjuvant treatment of adult patients with hormone receptor, HR-positive, human epidermal growth factor receptor, HER2-negative, node-positive, early breast cancer, at high risk of recurrence, and a KI-67 score greater than or equal to 20%, as determined by an FDA-approved test. This marks the first advancement in adjuvant treatment of HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer in nearly two decades. This approval was based off of the landmark data from the Monarch e-clinical trial, which demonstrated a 37% reduction in the risk of recurrence in patients. Hello, and welcome to the educational activity titled Advanced Practice Perspectives on CDK46 Inhibitors, Paving the Way for Hormone-Positive HER2-Negative Early Breast Cancer. I'm Christy Orball. I'm a nurse practitioner at Community Hospital Oncology Physicians. Today, I'm joined by Val Adams an associate professor at Markley Cancer Center at the University of Kentucky. I'm also joined by Teresa Gillespie, who's a professor at the Department of Surgery and Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Emory University School of Medicine in Winship Cancer Institute. This activity may contain discussion of published and or investigational uses of agents that are not indicated by the FDA. The planners of this activity do not recommend the use of any agent outside of the labeled indications. Here are the disclosures of conflicts of interest. And here are the learning objectives. So we'll start today's activity by uh, briefly reviewing three oral CDK46 inhibitors that are approved for hormone-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer, and then move on to our main focus of our activity with a discussion on these agents in early breast cancer as adjuvant treatment. Endocrine therapy has been the backbone historically for folks with hormone-positive metastatic breast cancer. Unfortunately, a large amount of folks that do have that metastatic hormone-positive breast cancer develop endocrine resistance or go on and progress in the midst of endocrine therapy. So this has been a population that has needed hope that has needed um, a new class of drugs. In 2015, a new class of drugs 
was um, approved called CDK46 inhibitors. And this was a very important addition to our uh, armamentarian that we use to treat metastatic breast cancer. CDK46 inhibitors are important in one of the signaling pathways that is utilized in patients that have endocrine resistance. There are currently three on the market. The first to market was pavlociclib. The second is ribociclib. The third is abimacyclib. Each of these drugs has an indication both in initial endocrine-based therapy as well as use after disease progression following endocrine therapy. So when you look at the overview of the use of CDK46s in first-line therapy, really regardless of whether we use um, palbocyclib, ribocyclib, or abemocyclib, we have an improvement in the median progression-free survival in folks that have the addition of the CDK46 inhibitors. And then we um, also highlighted a difference in median overall survival that we saw in the Mona Lisa 7. There was some updated overall survival data as well, which you will see here. So what we see consistently across first line as well as after disease progression is the addition of that CDK46 inhibitor, regardless of which one we choose, increases the median progression-free survival. We also see that in certain situations, we see improvement in median overall survival. Now, there are some differences. Uh, palbocyclib has tablets as well as capsules. The dosing differences is palbocyclib 125 milligrams daily. It's only given once. Ribocyclib is given 600 milligrams once a day. And both of those drugs are given 21 days on, seven days off. Then you move to abemocyclib. It's given 150 milligrams BID when it's used in conjunction or in partnership with fulvestrin or an AI. And then as a monotherapy, it's given 200 milligrams BID. This is the one that's dosed continuously. So just to kind of pull that together, there's been no head-to-head -head trial among the three. The similarities, they're all oral agents. Um, they're all indicated for hormone-positive, HER2-negative, advanced or metastatic. They're given until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity, and all improved that progression-free survival. We do know that we have noted in ribocyclib and abemocyclib have shown overall sur um, survival compared to the standard of care arm in advanced breast cancer. And in the uh, Paloma 3 trial, the new uh, updated data that we just received from ASCO demonstrated in certain subsets, we did see survival benefit. Um, so now let's move on to the adjuvant study.
when we have drugs that are useful and beneficial in the metastatic setting, we try to move them into earlier stages of the disease to see if we can decrease recurrence rates. Here you'll see the CDK4-6 inhibitors that uh, have been studied in the adjuvant setting. Studies have also been ongoing and some are still recruiting, looking at can we give these drugs, these CDK4-6s in the neoadjuvant setting um, to improve benefit and decrease recurrence. So let's review the MONARCH-E trial. Here's how the trial design looked, specifically looking at patients with high risk breast cancer. And, and we'll cover what that looked like here in, in just a bit. And then they were randomized to abemacyclib, 150 milligrams BID for two years, plus standard of care endocrine therapy. And then the control arm was standard of care endocrine therapy. And, and that was given for somewhere between five and 10 years, uh, whatever was appropriate. Primary objective was invasive disease-free survival. So let's look at more in depth what that looked like. You'll see the primary endpoints that we discussed. Now, one thing that I wanna point out is that the median follow-up is 19.1 months. So that's a relatively short follow-up. And so it's gonna be really, really important that we continue to watch this data. So Monarch-E was a phase three trial looking at adjuvant abemacyclib, BID plus endocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone for a two-year duration in patients that were deemed high risk. Now, so what that high risk looked like, um, it looked at the clinical pathologic risk factors, including positive nodes, tumor size, histologic grade, and KI67 expression. So to qualify for the study, the patient had to have at least four positive lymph nodes at the time of surgery. If they did not have four positive lymph nodes, if they had one to three positive lymph nodes, they had to have one of the following, either a very high-grade tumor, a large tumor, which was considered five centimeters or greater, or they had to have an elevated KI-67. And they considered an, a high KI-67 of greater than or equal to 20%. The results showed a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in invasive disease-free survival in patients that were treated with abemacyclib. The two-year invasive disease-free survival was 92.3 in the abema arm compared to 89.3 in the control arm. Abemacyclib used in combination with standard endocrine therapy significantly decreased the risk of invasive disease by 28.7% compared to standard adjuvant endocrine therapy alone in patients with hormone positive, HER2 negative, node positive, high risk early breast cancer patients. 
you will see that in the patients that had the high KI-67 scores, the two-year invasive disease-free survival rate was 91.6% compared to 87.1% with a hazard ratio of 0.691. Here's what the Kaplan-Meier curve looked like. And you'll see that the curves actually started separating at nine to 12 months. So let's look at the PALACE study. The PALACE study was a randomized phase three trial of adjuvant um, palbociclib um, with endocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone for um, hormone positive HER2 negative early breast cancer. This study included stage two and stage three patients and then randomized between palbociclib given for two years um, at 125 milligrams every day for three weeks, plus the endocrine therapy given per the appropriate uh, endocrine therapy regimen. And then the other arm was endocrine therapy alone. So the PALACE trial, again, looked at giving the, the PALBO for two years while the standard endocrine treatment was given for the appropriate amount of time, somewhere between um, five and 10 years. Patients with stage two disease were allowed, and in fact, 13% on each arm were node negative. In the second interim analysis, the addition of pabocyclib to adjuvant endocrine therapy did not show improved invasive disease-free survival compared to endocrine therapy alone. The three-year invasive disease-free survival was 88.2% for palbociclib plus endocrine therapy and 88.5% for endocrine therapy alone with a hazard ratio of 0.93. Analysis was done after 67% of expected invasive disease-free survival events had occurred. And unfortunately, at a post hoc analysis, no specific subgroup appeared to benefit from the addition of the pelbocyclib. So let's look at the Penelope B trial. The Penelope B trial looked at folks who had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and had residual invasive disease after that neoadjuvant therapy. They were randomized to palbociclib, 125 milligrams every day, day one through 21, but followed by seven days off for 13 cycles. And then the endocrine therapy was given um, as appropriate for the uh, the appropriate duration of time for the endocrine therapy. In this phase three double-blind study, they were specifically looking for patients that had not had that complete pathologic response. And the primary endpoint in this study was invasive disease-free survival. The palbociclib for one year, in addition to standard of care in endocrine therapy, did not improve that invasive disease-free survival in women with residual invasive disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. 
the estimated three-year invasive disease-free survival was 81.2% with pelvocyclib and 77.7% .7 with placebo. But as you'll see as we proceed, unfortunately, after year four, those curves crossed and, and we no longer saw the benefit. Now, the Natalie trial has just recently ended its recruitment phase. And this is the ribocyclob trial. And it, it included stage two and stage three. It looked at ribocyclob given 400 milligrams daily on an intermittent dosing of days one through 21, followed by seven days rest plus endocrine therapy. If the patient was premenopausal, they received an LHRH agonist. Now, I want to um, point out that that ribocyclob dose um, in the metastatic setting, we use 600 milligrams daily. In the Natalie trial, it was given 400 milligrams daily. And I believe that that was probably in hopes of being able to minimize toxicity, but maximize um, efficacy and, and hopefully keep patients on longer. There are two interim analyses that are planned. And so it looks as if patients that may benefit most from the potential addition of a CDK4-6 inhibitor in early stage therapy are patients with truly high risk disease. But what exactly does that mean? And um, what are things we need to look at when we're evaluating high risk in determining who exactly has high-risk disease. Well, clearly we know that the size of the primary tumor is very important. The larger the tumor, the more concern we have for patients that might have developed microscopic distant metastasis. Nodal status is also important. We know that the more nodes a patient has, the more concern we have for potential for recurrence on down the line or micrometastasis. So pathology, what does that tumor look like under the microscope? Um, does it look a lot like its cell of origin or does it look very, very different and um, almost freak-like and, and not look like its cell of origin at all? Is it high grade? Is it rapidly dividing? Um, is it poorly differentiated or very, very well differentiated? What's the hormone status? Are they estrogen positive? Are they progesterone positive? What about that HER2 status? All of those are very important. And then as we begin to look at and explore the KI67 expression, we find that that can be important as well. KI67 is a protein and it's associated with a cellular proliferation. As cells are dividing more rapidly, the expression of KI67 increases. Thus, a higher KI67 score represents a higher grade, more aggressive cancer. A KI67 protein level is determined based on staining of pathologic tissue from breast cancer samples. Less than 10% staining demonstrates a low KI67. 10 to 20% demonstrates a borderline K67. 
KI67 score. And those that have a greater than 20% staining have a high KI67 score. You'll see here the, the Monarch um, E study, and you'll see how the um, high KI67 staining was used as a potential biomarker for identifying patients with that high risk early breast cancer. Other factors that we need to consider is the age of the patient, what's their menopausal status, what is their race, and then thinking about those molecular subtypes. Now you'll see in this particular slide, what we're looking at is the invasive disease-free survival from the Monarch E study um, in various subgroups. And you'll see that um, basically most of the subgroups um, benefited from the addition of the abemocyclus. You'll also see that patients who had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, the two-year invasive disease-free survival rate was 87.2% versus 80.6%. Now, as we talked about those studies, I think um, it was probably obvious that there were some differences in those studies. And so let's, let's talk about that and, and kind of highlight some of the differences that we saw across the clinical trials. First of all, Monarch E trial, it appears they really sought out those patients that had truly high risk disease. Remember, the patients in the study all had four or greater positive nodes. If they didn't have four or greater positive nodes, then they had to have one to three positive nodes which, with one of the following risk factors. Uh, a high KI67 expression, so 20% or greater, a grade three tumor, or a tumor that was large, greater than or equal to five centimeters. We know that that invasive disease-free survival curve, we saw that started to spread as early as nine months. However, we also have to keep in mind that the uh, duration of follow-up is really relatively short in the study. It's 19.1 months. So we need to be diligent and watch this data. Now, in the PALACE study, um, as I alluded to earlier, they included stage two patients. And in fact, some patients were actually node negative. 13% of patients in each um, arm were node negative. And, and so was that an, an important piece to think about? Because perhaps these were very low-risk patients and they weren't going to recur. And so if they weren't going to recur, you really wouldn't see the benefit of the addition of a CDK46. That's one hypothesis, of course. The other thing about the, um, the PALACE trial is it had very, very strict toxicity criteria and dose reduction requirements per protocol. And so 42% of the patients actually discontinued palpocyclin 
and did not um, continue it for the entire two years. Now, we all know that if a patient doesn't take a medication, clearly they can't benefit from that medication, right? We know that if a patient had neutropenia, very quickly they were held and the dose was reduced. And this was continued. If the patient developed neutropenia after the dose had been reduced to 75 milligrams, then they were no longer able to continue on the study. Unfortunately, a post hoc analysis reviewing various subgroups did not show that any of the various subsets benefited from that addition of palbocyclib. Then looking at the Penelope B trial, these folks, many of the patients in the study at the time of surgery had a low KI67 expression. Only 25% of them had tumors with a high KI67 expression. Also, the palbocyclib was only given for a year, and the endocrine therapy in this study was given for five years, and is one year um, perhaps not long enough to really see the benefit. Also, approximately 20% of the patients did not complete all 13 cycles or didn't stay on the drug for that entire year. Now, one thing I do want to point out to you is that at three-year data analysis, the invasive disease-free survival in the palbocyclib arm was 81.2% compared with 77% in the placebo arm. So that was an absolute difference or an absolute benefit at that point of 3.5%. That's almost exactly what we see in the abemocyclib in the Monarch E trial. Now at four years, those curves came together and no statistically significant uh, improvement was demonstrated. So again, this bears the fact that we really need to follow the data and allow these studies to mature. So the Natalie trial, it has now completed an enrollment. And we know that in this particular trial, the CDK46 is actually going to be given for 36 months, so for three years. Um, and will that make a difference? We also know that the endocrine therapy will last up to 60 months and that the dosing um, of the ribocyclob was decreased in the adjuvant study. It's 400 milligrams daily in this adjuvant trial. Thought might be that it might be more tolerable from a bone marrow standpoint and that um, patients could stay on it and therefore hopefully benefit from it. Again, the trial has completed enrollment and, and we will just have to, have to wait and see. So as we consider these studies, as we, as we think about these four studies, the monarchy, the um, palace, the Penelope B, and the Natalie, things that we want to consider is if study fails, one thing 
one of the very first questions we ask is, did we have the wrong hypothesis? Was the trial perhaps not set up appropriately? The drug duration, the drug exposure. If a patient can't take the drug, um, it doesn't matter how good that drug is. If it's in the bottle and not in the patient, there's no way the patient can benefit from that. So does the um, duration of the CDK46 matter? Does it need to be longer than a year? Um, is two years the appropriate number? Is three years the appropriate number? And then, of course, the discontinuation rate. If we can't keep the patient on um, the regimen, they're not going to uh, benefit from it. So the data we've reviewed, I hope you find it as interesting as I do. I also hope you find it as hopeful, potentially. Um, but I, I think the caveat is we need to allow all of this data to mature. We need to be patient um, and wait for the data to mature so we can get more answers to many of these questions that we have just discussed. So I'd like to welcome back my colleagues, Teresa and Val. And what we're going to do now is we're going to just kind of talk about how we um, get a patient on uh, medication, help set them up for success so they can adhere to the medication regimen, help talk about um, watching for any potential toxicities and how we might mitigate that and, and how we'll use our entire team. So Teresa, in your practice, what are some of the factors that you find contribute most patients that discontinue their therapy? So the data are clear that uh, patients who are older, patients who um, have a lot of polypharmacy, patients who uh, perhaps have a less health literacy or understanding of what they're doing. I want to make the point that educational attainment does not necessarily or always translate to comprehension of what's going on. Um, so I think regardless of the educational attainment of the patient or the family members who are supporting that patient, all of us as providers need to really do a variety of techniques to make sure that the patient and the family understand um, what the drugs are, what potential side effects are, what is the particular regimen and the schedule. And I think one of the things that is often missed is talking about the goal of therapy. Um, patients may have metastatic disease and be thinking that, well, you know, I'm going to take this and this is going to be a finite amount of time and it's going to cure me. Um, and they don't necessarily understand or can articulate the goal of therapy. So I think that probably is one of the very first things. And then to um, ascertain perhaps from other drugs that the patient might be on for other chronic diseases, what has been their level of adherence? Are they prone to misdoses or be confused or not be very compliant um, or adhere rigidly? And, and that all kind of combined together to help maybe just highlight, hmm, we need to spend a little bit more time talking with this patient and family and maybe think of some tools or some other strategies to help that patient. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for that. Val, I tell you, I have the highest respect for pharmacists. I am very blessed at my facility to work with just a great pharmacy team. And I just wonder, at your in your practice, in, in your experience, what are some practical tactics for ensuing care coordination and communication among an interdisciplinary team? You know, um, let's face it, not one patient just has one doctor. <laughs> they have. And so how do you keep all that together and make sure that the team is, is communicating? Yeah, I think First, I really appreciate all the things that Teresa said. I think it really starts with the patient and trying to understand their expectations, but also their track record. And then, as you just mentioned, I think the big key is the communication because we have splintered care, right? Almost all of our patients, and at my institution, we're really fortunate. We've got a multimodality breast cancer clinic. So our surgeons come, our oncologists come, and our radiation oncologists come, a social worker come, pharmacy comes. You're exactly right. All those people have to be part of the same plan. And again, it, it has to involve the patient. But once it's started, what are we doing? Who's doing it? Who's going to get preauthorization? Who's following side effects? And the other element that's not in our room directly is our specialty pharmacy. Because as we know, these are all oral, and they're going to come from a specialty pharmacy. And that's probably different. So I would argue, and I think that you sound very supportive, having a good clinical pharmacist at the site helps us because someone needs to review all their meds and there's so many potential drug interactions, it's hard to get them all on the same computer when they're getting meds filled at, you know, their Kroger or Publix or whatever it is down the street, their, their local pharmacy versus uh, a specialty pharmacy that is functionally going to be a mail order, but they're going to follow the patient, ask about toxicities, solve the financial issues. But somebody has to make sure there's good communication among everybody. And there's a number of different successful things, but I think the key is exactly what you said. It's communication because we are kind of splintered and, and for good reason. It's getting harder and harder to know everything, right? So we, we are all involved, and I think good communication channels is really the key. I, I was just going to add that um, I like to think that there needs to be a quarterback for the team. And whether that is the advanced practice nurse or the clinical pharmacist or someone, but someone needs to be sort of the point person. And it's usually not going to be the physician who may be very, very busy or perhaps that person is off and someone else is covering for that person. But um, to, as, as Val said, to have that clear coordination and have someone leading that part of the team. So, the drugs, the polypharmacy, the drug-drug interactions. If, if someone isn't minding the store, it's very easy for so much to slip through the cracks and then patients can really get into real trouble. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with that more. In my experience, one thing that's been vital when, when we do education on oral therapies with patients and their support team or their caregivers, is to make sure they understand that that oral treatment is just as important as the IV treatment. And sometimes I really think they get in the mindset, well, this is just a pill. It can't make me as sick. There aren't as many toxicities. Or more importantly, it's not as important because it's just a pill. Um, and so I think making sure they understand 
that this is their cancer treatment. This pill going into their mouth on a regular basis is what's treating their cancer right now um, is really, really important. Now, how do you, either one of you jump in, um, what are some of the tactics you use for anticipating, monitoring, and managing any side effects with these CDK46 inhibitors? I guess if maybe I can start here. This is something that's not always widely known, and it, it reaches back to the communication. Specialty pharmacies actually, to be accredited, have to call and follow the patient for toxicity. I don't know if you're aware of that. So it's part of their, their jobs to call and follow up with patients. And when I talk about communication, it's helped us a lot. We have our own specialty pharmacy, but because insurance companies sometimes mandate who the long-term is, we'll fill the first one, then we'll have to transfer it to maybe a Credo or Walgreens specialty or something like that, and that's fine. But we don't always have as good a communication back because they are following up. And a lot of times, if it's just a mild or moderate toxicity, they'll make a recommendation. We don't even know what happened, right? So I think those are the things that it's hard. It's not great. You need to anticipate. But I think, again, some of the communication is probably key. For these drugs in particular, with the BEMA, you know, we're going to look at uh, diarrhea is one of the things that's symptomatic and it's a tolerability issue. But hopefully we're getting all we're all getting the right labs and looking at those for all of the neutropenia and those types of events and asking about infections and, and some of the other more common types of toxicities that we do see with this group of drugs. I would just add that a, a lot of whatever the techniques or tactics that are chosen, they need to be compatible with what is going to work with that individual patient. And so many of these um, women or, or men with um, this breast cancer, usually metastatic or what have you, are going to be a little older and some of them may or may not be technology savvy. And I wanna be the first to say that we cannot assume that because our patient is 70 years old that she or he doesn't understand or doesn't use technology. That's uh, very stereotypical and we need to sort of get beyond that. So we need to have the conversation and ask them you know, is it a classic phone call? Um, are people texting? Are they using the patient portal? Um, I think during the pandemic, many patients became very comfortable with telehealth for those centers that were utilizing that for follow-up visits or um, assessments of toxicities or how patients were doing in the interim. And so there's a wide variety of ways to, to monitor and to conduct ongoing surveillance about toxicity status and how people are tolerating and if they need an intervention. And that upfront conversation in terms of, you know, if you're experiencing X, Y, Z, different symptoms or problems, that's immediately when you need to make that phone call. And um, of course, we, we like it when patients have to come in for IV therapy because they're in our chairs and we can see them and put our hands on them and eyeball them and do all the things that we like to do. But you know, with these patients with oral therapies, a lot of that's on their own. And so we need to be creative and we need to be consistent and we need to have um, creative ways that are where the patient is in terms of what's most comfortable and what they're able to really um, engage with. So lots of options, but it needs to be compatible with the patient. Let me share with you a patient of mine. 
And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your, your thoughts about the patient um, and how you would manage this particular patient, how you would include the patient in um, shared decision-making, those types of things. So let me introduce you to her. Her name is Julie, and she underwent a screening mammogram in March of 17, and she had two suspicious masses in her left breast. Um, unfortunately, she also had uh, palpable lymphadenopathy on examination. She had a biopsy-proven invasive ductal carcinoma. It was ERPR positive, HER2 negative, KI67 of 9%. The biopsy of her axillary lymph node also demonstrated metastatic adenocarcinoma consistent with a breast primary. In April of, of 17, she underwent a left mastectomy with findings of multifocal uh, invasive ductal cell carcinoma. She had 11 of 26 nodes positive for metastatic disease. She started chemo with doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, followed by paclitaxel. She then went through radiation. She is a very, very savvy, savvy woman and actually works um, in the community with a breast cancer support group. She was a very big advocate um, for herself and decided um, that she wanted um, to pursue the Monarch E trial, and she was randomized to receive letrozole and abemocyclib. So now with that in mind, let's talk about how are we going to help her be adherent and, and what are some things we need to think about with her. So Teresa, I'll start with you. What strategies or resources do you use in your clinical practice to help facilitate oral therapy compliance? Or how would you talk to Julie? Right. And I, I want to get back to a point you made earlier, um, Christy, about that patients think that because it's a pill, it couldn't possibly be that important. And there have been studies looking at women who were on adjuvant therapy with both chemo followed by endocrine therapy, and while they were extremely adherent to the regimen for the chemotherapy, they often dropped off with their um, endocrine therapy. Now, part of that is because, you know, you're, you're probably giving at least some of that chemotherapy um, IV, so they have to show up. But the other uh, rationale that these patients had was that, well, you know, I had the big guns. I had the IV chemo, and these are just pills, and these are just kind of mopping it up even though we know for many of these women, it was the endocrine therapy that was probably going to do um, more of the therapeutic work than even the chemotherapy. So the first thing I would do with Julie is really assess her understanding of what are the goals of therapy? What does she understand about these particular CDK4-6 inhibitors? And you know this particular one, which is given continuously which in some ways is easier than the other two CDK4-6 inhibitors where um, they're given three weeks on and then one week off because it's, it's, um, it's kind of like birth control where you need to have something to keep them going during that week off or they can get off schedule pretty easily. Um, but I would ask Julie about, you know, what, what kinds of things does she use, for example, as reminders 
Um, I think one of the things that uh, even older people can adapt to pretty easily is using a, a smart speaker. So, you know, you're asking Alexa to remind you at 10 a.m. to take your pill and remind you at 8 p.m. or whatever it is um, in terms of making sure that you're following up with that. Um, knowing what her regular schedule is, is there a particular time of day where that might be really um, easy for her to hone in on that this is where I need to be taking these, these pills consistently um, and, and use however technology as well as there's a lot of pharmaceutical services that can help organize pill taking. So what other drugs is she on already? Uh, the, the whole drug-drug interaction, but also scheduling because that can get really, really complicated. I was just home with my parents this past weekend. They're in their 90s. And their pill bottles just cover the dining room table. It takes my father hours on every Sunday to set up all the pills for the week. So you have to kind of think about, well, how can we make it easy? Because if it's not easy and it's not almost automatic, I think that's where some of this adherence falls off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Val, in your practice, how do you all assess for patient adherence? You know, that's a, it's, it's such a great question. And Teresa said so many things that resonate with me. My mother's the same thing. So Kilberg is a real thing. I get it now. Okay. Um, and there's, there's a number of tools, but I think at the start to, to go back to your original question, I think one of the things that's really important to try to understand is what's their background? How many other medicines are they on? How do they take them? And to try to make it part of their routine. And I think that's the strategy to get back to your original question, even though I know you posed it different than that. Um, but, but, I, but I do, I feel like that's really important um, just to make sure it's part of their routine. And I think, you know, as I reflect myself, I, I'm on a statin just uh, at bedtime and it's now it's just part of my routine. Um, and I've got one, but, you know, there's a lot of people like my mother. I think she's got probably six or eight pills in the morning and another eight or nine at night. Um, and the pill burden and, and just adding to that, trying to figure out what's a good time, how can we work with that, what systems have they already got in place that we could just add to, I think is, is really key. In terms of talking to them and assessing uh, adherence, I think this comes with communication. Uh, a lot of this, again, it's going to go to a specialty pharmacy. It may take a day or two. You may never see it. I think in challenging cases, it's nice to have patients, and even originally, especially if they've got dosing changes or other things going on with their medications, ask them to bring all their pills with them when they come to clinic. And, you know, a clinical pharmacist or a nurse practitioner, somebody should just sit down and see. There's nothing more scary as a pharmacist to find out somebody's on warfarin and they've got a five milligram bottle and a seven and a half. And they're like, oh, yeah, they just... Uh, Bump me up to seven and a half, but I've just been taking one of each so I can finish the old fives. And you're <laughs> right. So those are the kinds of things that I think that it catches. Um, and, and it does because the pill burden and the adherence as they get older and more forgetful is really a problem. They're, I don't, don't have great strategies. I'm a huge fan of pill boxes. Um, somebody helping fill those. Um, but if they're already doing something else that works, Join in that, right? It has to be personalized for the patient. 
Now, I'll, I'll throw this question out to you both, and, and I'll see which one of you bite. But there's been a lot of talk, a lot written about shared decision-making and including that patient in um, helping guide their treatment journey. What does shared decision-making look like at your facility? Or what does it look like in your mind, your professional mind? So I'll, I'll just jump in and, and then Val can add as well. Um, um, there is a tendency when we get to that decision point and the healthcare provider or the team has described the options, and a lot of it is, well, doc, whatever you recommend, that's fine. Or you know best, or what would you do if it was your wife? All those kinds of scenarios. Um, and, and that's not everyone, but particularly older patients often are very, um, trying to think of a good word, uh, they tend to kind of go with what the recommendation is from the healthcare team, whereas um, perhaps some other subgroups might be more um, wanting to be involved and engaged in the decision making. And so I think, again, you have to be where the patient is and work with that patient from where they're coming from, because even then they still have some concept of what their goals are, or what they hope to achieve, or what is going to happen with this particular treatment. And that impacts their adherence to the schedule, their follow-ups, their reporting of toxicities. You know, when you look at the numbers and rates of people who discontinued these drugs, even on a clinical trial, um, then you have to sort of extrapolate that to community practice. And what does that mean about our own patient population? So it's very important, even in patients and practices where there's sort of this more traditional, um, perhaps more paternalistic kind of view about recommending treatment and going along with that, that those patients are fully informed and engaged. And so they're part of that sharing of whatever that decision is. We have to make it easy for the patient. If we make it complicated and uh, there's all these data over here and something over there. Um, some patients may want to know that, but many of them may not. So we need to be able to make it easy for them to understand and to adhere to and follow along. And then we're all kind of part of that team. I absolutely agree. Um, Val, did you want to add anything to that? You know, I, I do. I think I see it just very similar, um, but I would just add a slightly different view of the same process. I think having a multimodality sort of communication is important. So everybody on the team knows. And the reason that I think that's most important is we've got a variety of docs that communicate, some more intimidating than others. And I completely agree with Teresa. All the way along the line, they're going to ask the nurse, they're going to ask the nurse practitioner, they're going to ask the pharmacist, is this really the best, right? If we're all on the same team up front and we all understand the plan, um, and, and the other thing that's part of that, and we've got a number of our docs that do this really nicely, is they figure out a way to describe benefit versus risk and number needed to treat. 
I, I agree. And I think part of uh, shared decision making is understanding what brings that particular patient quality of life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think uh, it has to be personalized uh, to the patient, absolutely. And, you know, people with a long commute probably aren't going to tolerate uh, diarrhea as a toxicity, even though it might be grade one or grade two. That might be intolerable for them if they do a lot of driving. I think having good communication with the patients and understanding, you know, what they value and how valuable, because as, as a scientist, I find myself, efficacy trumps toxicity. That's how my brain's kind of wired. And I would say that's why we transplant people. I, I agree. And I'd like to just add another point about uh, toxicity as, as we kind of begin to, to kind of tie up things here. And, and that is, again, speaking about patients and as individuals, I think if we, with each and every person we put on a, a treatment regimen, regardless of what it is, we need to really think about those toxicities and make sure that patients have a plan. They need to have a plan in place if, if they uh, have diarrhea or if they have, um, you know, developed nausea or vomiting, if they develop a fever. They've got to know, okay, this is the first thing I do. This is the second thing I do. I, I think that empowers them if they know what to do. And let's face it, Murphy's Law, they're never going to have a, a really bad toxicity between 9 and 5, Monday through Friday. They are always going to have their worst toxicity, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, their doctor's never on call when they're having their toxicity, right? So if, if we, um, you know, you, you mentioned something about diarrhea. So, so let's think about my, my patient, Julie, that, that we had, um, that she's now completed um, the monarchy study. We, we made sure she had uh, an anti-diarrheal medicine at home. We made sure she understood at the very first sign when to start that medication, how to increase her fluids, when to call the office. You know, really made very concrete, uh, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three. And I think that empowers patients if they feel like they know what to do. Yeah, I, I would just add one thing to that. It's always nice to make sure we give it to them in writing because information overload sometimes is a real thing, too. So if they've got it in writing, they can refer back to it or even share it with the caregiver. That's always good. Um, and at, at my shop, we've got a triage nurse that answers the phone. So make sure they've got the triage nurse's phone. I know that maybe throws a few of you folks under the bus, but that's how it works at my shop. Yeah, that's right. And, and I would just also add, because uh, you were primarily talking about more acute toxicities like diarrhea or something like that. But there are also chronic toxicities like fatigue. And fatigue can really impact quality of life. And that can be incredibly important to patients to have the, the energy to do the things that are important to them. And sometimes I've found that patients won't really report fatigue because they think, well, that's just part and parcel to having cancer or having cancer treatment. And the other side of that is that it, there's a counterintuitive approach to fatigue in terms of encouraging more exercise because patients are like, well, I'm tired. 
why, you know, why would I want to exert more energy? So that's something that is um, you have to sort of approach it from a little different than, you know, if you if you have diarrhea, you take an anti-diarrheal. But if you're fatigued, you actually want to try to exercise more. So you have to, again, assess the patient individually and make sure that even these more chronic kinds of toxicities that may not seem life threatening, but can definitely impact quality of life are also addressed. I, I think that's great. I think that's great. And I'd like to thank you both for joining me um, and for sharing your, your valuable, valuable experience and expertise with us. I'm going to leave us with just a few takeaways as we uh, conclude this, this program. Um, CDK4-6 inhibitors are a relatively new class of drugs for treating hormone-positive, HER2-negative, uh, uh, advanced breast cancer. In many ways, the addition of these drugs have revolutionized a patient population. They are well-tolerated um, in clinical trials for metastatic disease. However, nurses, pharmacists, advanced practice, we all need to be very aware of the potential drug toxicities and how um, those toxicities at times can be a barrier to adherence, but there are also other barriers to adherence. And when we move medications from a metastatic setting into an adjuvant setting, sometimes we may find that patients are a little less tolerant of any toxicities in that adjuvant setting. We um, have reviewed um, data looking at abemocyclib and palbocyclib in the adjuvant setting. Abemocyclib in combination with endocrine therapy demonstrated efficacy for patients with um, hormone positive, HER2 negative, node positive, high risk um, early breast cancer. But I think you might agree that when we reviewed and compared these trials, there still are questions. We still have probably more questions in the adjuvant setting with these drugs than, than we were able to provide answers. I think we need to continue to watch this data closely as it matures and, and be on the lookout <clears throat> as new updates are are released. So I'd like to thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.